Voice of Glittering Delights! And here your host, Dandrew Leyland. Hello everybody and welcome back to an all new Palace of Glittering Delight. I am Andrew Leyland. I am all on my Billy Todd because nobody loves me in this podcast. I'm all alone. This will probably be the last one that I release on the Hey Kids comics feed. I'm hoping to set up a new one just for this. I say me like I do it. I'm hoping to email email the mighty Mike Voyles. And get him to set us up one, if he would be so kind. It's not like I do anything. This is my little side project. It's not Hey Kids Comics. It's not about comics. It's actually about, today, Star Trek. But if you are in true, uh, can't speak, no editing. If you're into here for the comics, you can feel free to just delete this from your little MP3 player. And I won't be offended, honest. Largely because I won't know that you've done it. Oh, yes, yeah, so, top ten Star Treks. When I did the... Top 10 favourite episodes of television ever. I deliberately omitted mentioning Star Trek. I mentioned it in the show. Largely because I could easily pick top 10 favourite episodes of Star Trek. And that would have been the entire list. So I thought removing that from the list would make it much more varied. And it worked. But this then is what that list would have been. If I was just picking my top 10 favourite hours of television ever. That did have the words Star Trek in the title. Page after page in books and on the internet has been written about Star Trek. Its longevity, its importance, its optimistic outlook, that it's proper science fiction with proper science fiction writers, blah, blah, blah. But what few people seem to comment on, what few people seem to realise in their desire to lionise the series and its creator, Gene Roddenberry, is that it was just a good show. Now, does the fact that it was a good show account for four sequel television series, taking in 25 seasons of television between them, totalling 28 seasons altogether? Mm, I don't know. Does that it was good account for 12 feature films, countless novels, comics, internet programmes and merchandise? All the many conventions that have given the actors slightly longer than 15 minutes of fame? All that the phraseology of the show has entered the popular language? No, no it doesn't. In addition to being good, a lot of people quite liked it. Pithy? Perhaps. But it's as good a reason as any for Star Trek's longevity and influence. It is also, without a doubt, my all-time favourite TV show ever. Sure, there are many other shows that are arguably better than Star Trek. Maybe better written, better acted, better production values. But Star Trek had something. An X factor, a special element, some indefinable ingredient that elevated this wagon train to the stars and placed it amongst the pantheon of the truly great pieces of 20th century art. Star Trek is a lot of things. For one, it's deceptively hard to write, being part Shakespeare, part science fiction, part melodrama, part character piece, part allegorical action-adventure. For another, it's an anthology series with a continuing cast, an oxymoronic blend that wouldn't be successfully duplicated until Quantum Leap almost 25 years later. It's a populist entertainment with a minority mentality. It is not a cult Hit, another oxymoronic term. Star Trek was a mainstream entertainment on a mainstream network. At its best, it's positively inspirational. At its worst, it's merely entertaining. 
For me, Star Trek begins and ends with the original series, including the pilot movie. Star Trek was made in between 1964 and 1969 and clocked up 79 total hours of television and has never been surpassed by the sequel series. It aimed for the stars and hit more often than not. It also sank into the gutter on more than one occasion, but if you're going to take risks, sometimes you're going to fall flat on your face. None of the subsequent series, good as they may have been, ever managed to completely capture the feel and tone of the original, never managed to soar quite as high, although Deep Space Nine came closest with episodes like Far Beyond the Stars. The other series probably didn't fail as spectacularly as the original either, although both Voyager and The Next Generation earned their fair share of dreck. There was just something about that blend of people at that time making that show that created magic. And so there, a show devoted to my top ten Star Treks. Again, these are favourites, not a list of the best, which are two completely different things. Before we begin, I feel the need to draw attention to two notable omissions from my list. Firstly, there is no City on the Edge of Forever. I have no issues with City, its prime slice of Trek, although arguably bears little resemblance to Harlan Ellison's original teleplay. For me, though, there are episodes that better capture what Star Trek is about rather than City, although it may very well be one of the finest hours of science fiction television ever produced. There is also no trouble with Tribbles. Unlike City, I do have issues with Tribbles. I find it a hugely overrated episode, more memorable than actually good. It's far too broad, for one thing. Episodes like A Piece of the Action and By Any Other Name are funnier than Tribbles because they are Star Trek doing comedy, as opposed to Star Trek as comedy. For another, Kirk is very out of character in this episode compared to the others. Whilst we've seen him being forced to deal with diplomats before, here he's openly contemptuous of the people he's been ordered to assist and borderline insubordinate. Thirdly, the Klingons are a joke in Tribbles, which is appropriate as everything is a joke in Tribbles. Koloth especially is an incredibly effete Klingon. I never buy this guy as a threat to Kirk, unlike Kor or Kang, and Kirk would probably chew this guy up and spit him out before his morning coffee. Unlike City, Tribbles never even made the shortlist. Episodes that did make the shortlist, but were ultimately discarded, were a piece of the action, a fun romp, and a much better light episode than Tribbles. The Menagerie, for adding depth, and no small amount of pathos to the original pilot, The Cage. I feel The Cage is still one of the finest pilot movies ever made, and I may devote a show to it one day. Tomorrow is Yesterday is an excellent time travel yarn, and The Devil in the Dark is a 48-minute distillation of what Star Trek is. It should be required viewing for J.J. Abrams. Arena with the Gorn, Space Seed with Khan, Journey to Babel with Spock's mum and dad, and the really rather beautiful and underrated Metamorphosis, a subtle mediation on love and what it means, almost made the cut. And when your runner-up episodes include segments like Devil in the Dark and Journey to Babel, you've clearly got an embarrassment of riches on your hands. So, we've prevaricated around the bush long enough. Welcome to Top 10 Treks.
third season entry and the only third season show in the pick. Whilst I still find things to enjoy in the third season, there's no denying there's something off about it. It looks and feels different compared to the previous two. However, Spectre of the Gun, written by Lee Cronin, a pseudonym for script editor and lead writer Gene L. Kuhn, and directed by Vincent McKeevity, is actually a high point in the season. Partially, this is purely a nostalgia pick. This is the first episode of Star Trek I can ever remember watching in the late 1970s when we moved into a new house. I remember eating fish and chips on the floor as the furniture hadn't arrived yet, watching this unspool on our television set. In this episode, Captain Kirk flagrantly ignores an alien's warning boy and takes the Enterprise in to try and establish contact with the Melkotians, a notoriously prickly race. They don't take too kindly to A, Kirk ignoring their warning, and B, Kirk threatening them with a phaser when they tell him what an arsehole he is. The Melkotians decide to punish the crew, in this case Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Chekhov and Scotty, and use something from the captain's mind as he ordered the transgression as the instrument of their deaths. Thus, Kirk and co. find themselves on a surrealistic set, forced to live out the battle at the OK Corral as the Clanton Gang. A battle the Clantons lost. On the face of it, Spectre isn't anything Star Trek hadn't done before. Kirk, refusing to kill, echoes his stance with the Gorn in Arena, and his passionate plea that we're not going to kill. Today. The episode is actually a pay-in to the peaceful resolution to conflict at the height of the Vietnam War, a common Star Trek theme, and Spectre is still a cut above the usual television drama of the time, and works as both an exciting hour of television and as allegory. One of the things that surprises me when I revisit Star Trek is how little the show has aged in terms of its stories and pacing, and this is no exception. Whilst a lot of TV from the 60s, 70s and even the 80s drags by today's standards, Trek generally, and this episode in particular, first sprints along. The opening scenes on the bridge, despite being again reminiscent of earlier shows, are tense, even if Kirk is a bit of an arrogant ass in his assumption that he can go anywhere he damn well pleases, despite being warned off. When the Melkotians pull him up on this, he says, We come in peace, pulls out his phaser and points it at them before concluding with, But we'll defend ourselves if necessary, a stance that is both hysterical and deservedly mocked in the firm's irritatingly catchy song, Star Trekking. It's this arrogance that gives the rest of the episode a feeling of ironic melancholy, that Kirk's presumption that he can just wander in and demand to be heard leads him to spend a great deal of the episode pleading with the Earps to not fight. Director McKeevity does a magnificent job shooting this episode. He uses a lot of close-ups and low angles and uses the half-constructed sets to great advantage, a cost-cutting measure that aids with the look of the show immeasurably. The characters, other than Kirk, are all serviced very well in this show, giving the episode the ensemble feel of the early episodes before it became the Kirk Spot McCoy hour. Scotty is stalwart and true, but Jimmy Doohan gets a few scenes to shine, as does DeForest Kelly, always a treat as Dr. McCoy, who also gets a standout scene with Doc Holliday. Even Walter Koenig gets a larger-than-normal role, playing out the young stud muffin part admirably. Leonard Nimoy gets to portray Spock at his most detached, but is, of course, the one to figure it all out, and this scene is exceptionally well acted and directed. Spock sits and stews over the fact that the tranquilizer grenade they made to knock out the Earps and thus avoid bloodshed malfunctions when all the laws of science say that that mix of chemicals in that combination should have worked. 
It's Spock at his most pissed off, something not obeying the laws of science. His conclusion that the crew need to be convinced as he is that this is not real leads to a mind-meld scene that is magnificently staged and would be echoed by Nimoy himself when he would direct Star Trek III 15 years hence. Using the mind-meld is also a nice nod to Trek history and the final resolution is quite satisfying. The episode is also run through with a neat sense of humour. Shatner plays a few scenes for comedy, particularly the tranquilizer scene where he demands it to be tested simply because... Everything has gone wrong today, and his staccato, it doesn't work, is very dry in its delivery. Doohan likewise gets to play Scotty's alcoholism as light relief, but it works, and the camaraderie between the actors is a high point. Also a high point is the score. Star Trek has one of the finest soundtracks in TV history, from the beeps and whistles on the bridge, to the whirring of the tricorders, to the chirrup of the communicators, and this extends to the musical scores. More than just background wallpaper, the Trek musical scores were melodic and bombastic and eminently memorable. This one by Jerry Fielding captures the space western feel of this episode so well, from the saloon music to the lovely little harmonica theme that runs through the show. This score is outstanding. I really like this episode. It's Trek as solid entertainment, but still has some mind food to chew on, although it's never patronising or obvious, just like Kuhn's other episodes on the show, Errand of Mercy, Metamorphosis and Devil in the Dark. It's also a very exciting drama, with everybody eking out every last bit of tension from the scenario. It is a retread in many ways, bearing a striking resemblance to the Corbomite manoeuvre, amongst others, and would have been a decent second season show. However, in the third season, it's top-tier entertainment. Coming in at number nine, first season entry Charlie X, written by then newbie DC Fontana, from a story idea by Gene Roddenberry. Fontana would go on to be the series' secret weapon. The Enterprise picks up a 17-year-old boy, Charlie Evans, from a smaller starship, the Antares. The Antares crew tell Kirk that Charlie was discovered on the planet Thesis, where the starship crashed, killing all aboard except Charlie, who was then aged three. Kirk can't help but notice that the Antares crew seem very happy to get rid of Charlie, but takes the turbulent teen on board with a view to dropping him off on an Earth colony. Charlie quickly takes a shine to comely yeoman Janice Rand, but when strange things start happening to the people that piss Charlie off, Kirk and crew realise that Charlie must be stopped before they reach Colony 3. This teenage version of Rebel Without a Cause, Rebel Without a Crew if you will, is another standard slice of Trek and was one of Roddenberry's stock ideas. The crew discover a godlike being who turns out to either be insane or childish or both. In this case, Dorothy Fontana fleshes out Roddenberry's one-sentence outline into a sensitive and engaging story replete with choice character moments and an engaging central performance from Robert Walker as Charlie, who, despite being a petulant brat, ends up being a sympathetic character. It's hard not to feel sorry for him, somebody who's grown up alone and without human contact for 14 years, and we will later find out his powers were a gift from the Thasians, a race we never see properly, and that's how he survived. His alienation is well handled with both Kirk and Janice trying to offer the hand of friendship to Charlie. What's especially interesting is Kirk initially fights the impulse to be Charlie's role model. McCoy tries to convince him that it has to be him early on and Kirk demurs. And twice more in the episode he'll decline being Charlie's male role model or 
big brother figure, only to ultimately accept that he's only he as captain of the ship that Charlie responds to. There isn't as much comedy in this one, also Shatner's performance when Janice informs him that Charlie has a crush on her is very endearing, and it's a fine example of how the early treks were envisioned more as an ensemble, with Janice, Uhura and McCoy all getting decent roles. However, the thing that makes this one stick in the memory are the scurs. Star Trek wasn't as scurry as Twilight Zone or Doctor Who, but this episode contains a few shockers. The most notable for me is Charlie wiping the face off the girl in the corridor, which was something that haunted me as a kid and is still quite shocking today. As Charlie is let loose, he really becomes quite unlikable, stalking the corridors of the Enterprise and being generally unpleasant to people whose only crime is having a good time. Fontana explores the feelings and thoughts of the outsider and the turmoil of teenagehood very well, and in many ways it shows that growing up, even without social media, is never easy. It's a testament to her writing and Walker's performance that the end, when the Thasians return to take Charlie away, the audience isn't happy to see him go, but rather saddened by the repeated refrain that he wants to stay, 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 which leaves the audience feeling uncomfortable rather than warm and fuzzy. It's this ending that makes the episode for me, although it was rather well written throughout. Watching it again, I was sucked in completely by the drama and the characters. Some people like to mock Star Trek for its stock situations and characterizations, but in my experience, these tend to be people who've never actually watched the show and are only actually aware of how it's perceived. The show features no hand-wringing acting, no eyebrow-raising, no fascinating, or he's dead, Jim. What it does feature is believable characters in an out-of-this-world setting that, for all its futuristic gadgetry, is still recognisable because of the people. There are a lot of little touches that emphasise this is Trek, from Kirk wanting real turkeys for Thanksgiving to the ever-present cup of coffee. Presumably the captain of a starship needs a lot of caffeine. The scene with Uhura singing goes on a bit long and one wonders how she got her voice back, and it's a bit dated in how it presents its time off. Apparently a good time in the future consists of milling around watching Spock and Uhura have a jam session. It's also notable that a misreading of this scene led the New Trek producers to make Spock and Uhura a couple. The episode also has some of my favourite bloopers to ever appear in Star Trek. Firstly, when Charlie is being examined by Dr. McCoy in sickbay, his reflection shows him standing up, even though he's lying down when McCoy talks to him. Secondly, when Kirk enters the turbolift with Charlie to go to the bridge, his shirt changes from the regular command gold he normally wears to the more casual green wraparound tunic. And finally, when Charlie throws Kirk and Spock into the wall near the end, Spock puts his shoulder through the wall. Vulcans really are stronger than humans. Charlie X is the first and best godlike beings are all little children episode. The Squire of Gothos is fun, but this has a little bit more meat. Coming in at number 8 is the first proper episode of Star Trek ever filmed, The Corbomite Maneuver. Written by Jerry Soule, but with considerable rewriting by Gene Roddenberry, the Enterprise encounters a warning boy in space, but unlike Inspector of the Gun, this is unexpected, and thus, to continue its mission, the Enterprise destroys it and passes by. Subsequently, the crew encounter a perfect cube that accuses them of trespassing. After a few tense games of cat and mouse, the cube is also destroyed and replaced by a spherical starship. The alien life forms inform the crew that they will be destroyed in ten minutes, and all looks grim for the Enterprise. Spock informs Kirk that in chess, when an opponent is outclassed, the game is over. Kirk, not one to believe in the no-win scenario, decides to play not chess but poker. 
The synopsis above is merely a thumbnail sketch of the plot and fails to capture just what a magnificently tense episode this is. Again, the score is outstanding with all the cues you remember from Star Trek, and this score was retracked for many future episodes. Where Corbomite Maneuver really works, though, is in the life and death stakes and what the cost this kind of cold warfare has on man. Mr. Bailey, here depicted as a young officer who may have been promoted too quickly due to Kirk's fondness of him, is the first to crack under the strain, and Kirk takes this terribly personally. The writers also use this as an excuse to have Kirk and McCoy at loggerheads for most of the episode, culminating in Kirk losing his temper with McCoy in a key scene on the bridge. Dee Kelly and William Shatner play these scenes for all they're worth, and it's a testament to the character's friendship that neither party takes the other's point of view personally. It's even more impressive when you consider that Shatner and Kelly manage to convince the audience of their relationship, despite this being in production order, Kelly's first appearance in the series. From this episode, it appears that McCoy and Kirk are going to have a slightly more adversarial relationship than they would ultimately have, although the idea that McCoy is the only one who can tell Kirk what to do without reprisal would be carried into the series going forth. Bailey is also a well-developed character. A number of guest stars have commented on what a joy Star Trek was to do, as it offered great roles to guest actors, and whilst Anthony Call, who plays Bailey, isn't the most magnetic guest Trek would ever have, he manages to capture his sweaty insecurities quite well. Also interesting is that Spock makes pretty much all the wrong calls in this episode, a far cry from the always right portrayal that we would get many times going on. The chess game between Kirk and Spock have been seen before, and although we don't actually get a game between the two men here, we learn that Kirk is equally adept at poker as he is at chess. Kirk was not an inveterate ladies' man with a flagrant disregard for orders. He was a measured and intelligent commander with a keen knowledge of tactics, but also a capable diplomat when necessary, and we get to see both sides of that personality trait here. No discussion of the Corbomite manoeuvre would be complete without mentioning little Clint Howard as Baylock, who is really pretty scurry with his voice overdubbed by an adult, and it's a pretty cool twist in the tale when the true nature of Baylock is uncovered. The episode also deals with the idea of appearance. Baylock reveals nobody would be scared of him as he was, and so he concocted this elaborate ruse, and this is again another tried and true Trek theme, not to judge solely on what one looks like, but on the personality of the person himself. What makes me adore this one so much, though, is not only that it manages to capture the essence of Trek in so short a span, not that it was so well-formed straight out of the gate, but the characters and situations are gripping. Shatner, mocked often but without cause in these early shows, plays a world-weary Captain Kirk here, always tired and quite low-key. He commands every scene he's in, even though D. Kelly, always this show's scene-stealer, gives him a good run for his money. Whilst this is a very memorable episode, I don't really think that people take the time to look at it and watch it purely as a piece of entertaining television, and thus they forget how groundbreaking this show is. The fact that this and my previous picks are all shit-bound episodes demonstrate the quality of the writing. This is one of the few times in the show Kirk seems outclassed, and as such he's a much warmer and more relatable character. Mirror Mirror, an exceptional second season instalment, comes in at number 7. Captain Kirk, Scotty, Bones and Uhura are all involved in peace talks with the Halkin Council to arrange a trade agreement with the Federation for mining dilithium crystals, a fuel source used in starship propulsion. However, an ion storm makes beaming up difficult, and Kirk and company must cut short the talks and return to the ship. 
During transportation, however, the storm disrupts the circuit, and the crew materialize in a parallel universe, where the Federation is a warlike organization. With Spock suspicious from the outset, Kirk and Co. must survive career advancement through assassination, duplicitous captain's women, and save the life of the Halcons, all the while trying to get home. Written by Jerome Bixby, with the usual tinkering from second season writing staff Roddenberry Coon and Fontana, Mirror Mirror develops a fascinating tale about how good people will always rebel against a totalitarian regime, but any underlining meaning is all but irrelevant in an episode as fun and entertaining as this. Nitpicks can be made. Why are the Halkins meek in both universes? What were Scotty and Uhura doing on a diplomatic mission? Why is it so easy to jump between universes? The exposition with Kirk figuring out what happened is also clunky, but thankfully dispatched with quickly so we can get on with the story. But all of these nitpicks are to miss the point of a sumptuously realised and magnificently rendered episode. It's a rare example of everything working. The altered costumes are striking with the women burying their midriff, and Kirk, having a sleeveless version of his wraparound tunic, our first glimpse of Spock with his goatee, the background information on the parallel universe, including Kirk rising to the command of the Enterprise by assassinating Captain Christopher Pike, is not only a great piece of continuity, but also an exquisite example of using backstory efficiently. Other lovely touches include Kirk and Spock being followed around by bodyguards who eye each other up menacingly, Skulu's scar and his lecherous relationship with Uhura, and Walter Koenig again gets to flex his chops a little bit as a conniving Chekhov. The political manoeuvrings of the characters are fascinating, with Spock being especially well-drawn, but all of the regulars get something to do, and it's almost perfectly structured, with two different ticking clocks added to the story to keep things interesting, and the writers keep piling problem upon problem on the leads. Sadly, the end seems a little bit rushed. If any episode could have been stretched out to a two-parter, it's this one, as more time in the Mirror Universe would have been glorious. However, Trek follows the old adage, always leave them begging for more, and it culminates with a wonderfully delivered speech by Shatner, who, as Kirk, admonishes Spock for allowing this illogical version of Starfleet to exist, pleading with him that change is inevitable, predictable, beneficial. Doesn't logic demand that you be part of it? Push till it gives. What will it be? past or future, tyranny or freedom, it's up to you. Performances are universally excellent. Leonard Nimoy takes Spock's usual implacable and doer demeanour and successfully applies it to a far more chilling interpretation of the Vulcan, and Shatner as Kirk is commanding yet subtle, as this Kirk finds much to admire in Mirror Spock. There's also some exceptional and, for the time, during sexual tension between Kirk and Mirror Universe's Captain's woman Marlena Moreau, played by Barbara Luna, including a wonderful line where Kirk says she could go through every captain in the fleet if she chose to do so. I don't think he quite meant that the way it came out. Even Nichelle Nichols and George Takai rise to the challenge, playing the Uhura-Sulu flirting scenes for all it's worth. The obligatory fight scene is even steeped in character, with Nimoy playing Spock's rage perfectly, and it takes three people to take him down. It's also an eminently quotable episode. Conquering is easy, control is not. Oiling your traps, darling. In every revolution there's one man with a vision, and more. This is, quite simply, Star Trek at its very best. Norman Spinrad's tale of mutually assured destruction, the Doomsday Machine, is number six. Don't tell Patrick McGowan. 
When the Enterprise receives a distress signal from sister ship the USS Constellation, captained by Kirk's friend, Commodore Matt Decker, played by William Wyndham, they beam over only to find Decker the only survivor of a confrontation with an age-old superweapon capable of destroying entire planets. This prototype Death Star has managed to completely obliterate two planets in this star system, as well as crippling the Constellation. Decker is taken by McCoy back to the Enterprise, whilst Kirk, Scotty and the director of Babylon 5 try to get the Constellation moving again. However, when this doomsday machine returns and targets the Enterprise, Decker takes command and orders the ship into battle on an obsessed mission of revenge. Yes, Star Trek does Moby Dick, again! Or for the first time, depending on the order you're watching the episodes. Granted, revisiting the classics is no crime, and it can't be that blatant as actor Wyndham didn't notice the parallels until years later when he caught the show in reruns, and Decker's part of the story is relatively minor, really. William Wyndham gives another one of those memorable Star Trek guest performances, giving even William Shatner a few lessons in scenery chewing, but capable of great subtlety as the script calls for it. Witness his performance when it looks like McCoy will successfully relieve him of command, and his smug satisfaction when Spock, of all people, makes the counter-argument for him. It's all done via facial expressions and body language, and is especially notable for being essentially background. Decker receives few close-ups in these scenes, the director preferring to focus on the McCoy-Spock banter, but it shows how in the moment Wyndham was. It's also one of the most FX-intensive episodes of the original show, especially in its remastered form, and incredibly suspenseful. The writers, Gene Kuhn, again providing an uncredited rewrite, manages the suspense admirably with quick cross-cutting between Kirk and Scotty on the Constellation and Spock and Decker on the Enterprise Bridge, running both storylines parallel but complementary to each other. It's a masterclass in how to write TV drama, with the viewer never confused as to what's going on, despite them both happening on the standing Enterprise sets. This was a Coon edition, by the way, with the original script taking place on the Enterprise and the Constellation Bridges, something Coon did think would potentially confuse the audience. Perhaps due to Wyndham's over-the-top antics in certain scenes, Shatner is the model of restraint in this episode, an acting decision that benefits the story immensely. Kirk's anguish at the Enterprise being in danger and his being unable to do anything is wonderfully played, as are the final scenes were, with the Constellation being used as a jerry-rigged bomb and launched down the planet killer's throat, Kirk anxiously awaits beam out. Sol Kaplan's magnificent score also deserves a shout-out. Pulse-pounding and dramatic throughout, the score reaches a crescendo at the end, and his passion rarely found in TV and film scores nowadays. With Kelly and Nimoy also perfect in the roles and a more-to-do-the-normal job for James Doohan as Scotty, this is one of the most suspenseful, dramatic, and, yes, best episodes of the series. The Ultimate Computer by Lawrence Wolfe and DC Fontana is at number five. Surprisingly, another ship-bound adventure showing Star Trek's initiative at coming up with dramatic and rich bottle shows, this plea against the over-computerisation of the workplace is a compelling and hugely dramatic story. When Captain Kirk is informed by Commodore Wesley, this week's Starfleet representation of jerkhood, that the Enterprise has had a singular honour conferred upon them, the M5 unit, Kirk is suddenly placed in a position where he may be rendered obsolete by te- technological advancement. However, the creator of the M5 unit, Dr. Richard Daystrom, turns out to be as unbalanced as his computer system, and when the M5 refuses to yield control of the starship, the war games set up to test M5's capabilities suddenly take a lethal turn. This is an excellent 
character piece. Once again, Star Trek's penchant for supplying the guest actors with meaty roles gives actor William Marshall as Daystrom a wonderful opportunity to run the gamut of emotion from proud to unhinged and all the colours in between in a part that could have been a caricature in lesser hands. However, Trek tries to portray Daystrom's point of view as fairly as possible, while still making him the antagonist. His final breakdown, upon realising that his best days may be behind him, is powerful stuff, and Daystrom is always a sympathetic figure, even when he cracks up at the end. Barry Russo as Commodore Wesley is arguably the bigger villain of the piece. He's all about the M5 and how it will revolutionise starship control, showing a distinct lack of concern for Kirk's feelings in front of Kirk's own crew. He refers to the captain as Dunsel, a reference to a useless part, and then during the war games, despite knowing full well Kirk is no longer in command, he blames Kirk for the war games going awry. Despite Trek trying to offer a positive viewpoint for Daystrom, this is yet another example of a Starfleet commander being a total asshole. The best scenes, though, are, as ever, between Kirk, Spock and McCoy. McCoy's reactions from disgust, the M5, to his playful mocking of Spock for his love of the technology, to his support of Kirk, is charming. Likewise, Nimoy's pleasure at the M5's capabilities are offset by Spock being equally concerned about Kirk. His admission in the middle of the show that computers make great servants, but I have no desire to serve under them, is a high point in the Kirk-Spock relationship. Two of the best scenes are between Kirk and McCoy. The first, in the first few moments of the show, is a wonderful walk-and-talk scene performed by Shatner and Kelly in one take, betraying their stage training. This chat about the benefits and disadvantages of computer technology is as potent and compelling today as it no doubt was nearly 50 years ago. The second, in Kirk's quarters, not only features Shatner doing another one of his magnificent speeches, this time is, all I ask is a tall ship speech, but the obvious camaraderie between Kelly and Shatner, and by definition by Kirk and McCoy, is palpable. Shatner made few friends amongst the Trek core cast, although guest stars often talked about him in nothing but glowing terms, but Kelly never seemed to have a bad word for anyone, and Shatner always allows him his moments to shine. The conclusion may again be another Kirk talks the computer to death, albeit a minor one, but the War Games confrontation is handled exceptionally well, and is as normal for Star Trek. Incredibly suspenseful and dramatic. Kirk's final solution to drop shields and pray Wesley is not a cold-blooded killer shows not only Kirk's trust in his fellow man, but also that he knows when to fight and when not to. It also redeems Wesley somewhat. It's another example of Kirk gambling and it paying off, a character trait that will be paid off 14 years later in The Wrath of Khan, but it echoes his past command decisions beautifully. It seems a stretch to suggest a computer will be insane due to having Daystrom's memory engrams imprinted upon it, but it works in the context of the show. The final discussion in the episode touches upon the man-versus-machine theme of the story and how compassion will always have a place if humanity is to progress. Shore Leave comes in at number four. Visually a lush and lovely episode, Shore Leave was written by Theodore Sturgeon with an uncredited rewrite by Gene Kuhn and Gene Roddenberry. The Enterprise orbits a planet that seems to be a paradise for the worn-out captain and his crew, and after an extensive survey reveals there are no life forms on the planet, Kirk orders Shore Leave. However, when Dr. McCoy sees a large white rabbit and a young blonde girl named Alice, Sulu finds an old coat special pistol, and Yeoman Barrow starts living out her princess fantasies, Kirk becomes suspicious, and, at McCoy's behest, beams down to check it out. 
The Paradise also gives Kirk some fantasies of his own, a confrontation with Academy bully Finnegan and Old Flame Ruth, but Paradise turns sour when McCoy is killed defending Yeoman Barrow's honour by Don Juan. This is undoubtedly an atypical Star Trek, veering very close to the fantasy rather than science fiction genre, which Roddenberry normally steered away from. Yet it's such an unalloyed delight to watch. The cast, by this point in the first season, had really started to gel, and Shatner, Kelly and Nimoy play off each other beautifully in their many scenes together. Spock even gets won over on his captain when he cons the tired commander to take shore leave despite his objections, and Shatner's reaction to Nemo's obvious delight at outfoxing Kirk demonstrate both men's easy camaraderie. We also learn an awful lot about Kirk in this episode. We already knew he was a stack of books with legs thanks to Gary Mitchell in the second pilot episode, but here we learn that he was tormented in the Academy by Finnegan, an upper mid-class first shipman, and that he was, in his own words, quite grim. He also had an intense relationship with a woman called Ruth. It's an awful lot of backstory about Kirk, but handled very well in the dialogue. This is largely, though, a fun episode, with director Robert Sparr managing to keep the proceedings light, never crossing the line into camp. McCoy is also at his finest, Kelly giving us a glimpse at McCoy off-duty and having fun. He banters with Kirk, Shatner and Kelly performing another walk-and-talk, reciting an awful lot of dialogue in one take, and McCoy flirts outrageously with Yeoman Barrows, another in Star Trek's long line of pretty guest stars, who bears a striking resemblance to Julie Newmar. It's nice to see McCoy get the girl, and a smart, intelligent and beautiful one at that, rather than Kirk, and he has a pleasant and easy relationship with Emily Banks playing the yeoman. The show takes a decidedly dark turn when McCoy is killed, and a World War II fighter plane starts performing strafing runs on crewmen. The denouement, where Kirk and Spock discover the truth, that it's a planet of pleasure designed to give everybody their heart's desire, but watch what you think, is tried and true Trek, a theme that has been covered before in the original pilot, The Cage, but it's just such a gloriously fun romp the audience goes with it. The location photography is gorgeous, but does affect the production in other areas, as the strange alien device following the crew is clearly a TV antenna. Star Trek often looked the best when it managed to escape the confines of the studio, and a number of episodes are memorable for the locations, Vasquez Rocks in Arena for example. This is another one, and the cast's enthusiasm is contagious for being out there on location. There are some oddities in the script. Kirk is fine with Spock giving him a sensual massage on the bridge in front of his crew, but seems to get embarrassed when he realises that it's Yeoman Barrows doing it. And it's the first of many treks where a regular cast member would be killed off, only to be magically resurrected later. It works in this story due to the fantasy nature of the script, and they manage to pull it off again in a mock time, but by the time Scotty is killed in Who Mourns for Adonai, it's starting to get a tad tired. The ending, with its you-people-aren't-quite-ready-to-understand-this mentality, is a tad patronising, but as it's just such a ball to watch, I didn't really care, and even the we-all-have-a-good-laugh ending isn't as obnoxious as usual. The score to this one by Gerald Fried is an oddity. It's hummable and memorable, with numerous cues showing up in future shows, but sometimes it gets a little bit overbearing. Thematically, the episode seems to be saying that no matter how stressed one gets, downtime and a healthy fantasy life is important to one's emotional well-being, as long as you know when to turn it off. 
It's not as deep as many of Star Trek's themes, but it's just as valid and arguably an important message to get across to people who maybe take the show a little too seriously. If there's one thing sure leave isn't, it's serious. Where No Man Has Gone Before, the second pilot, comes in at number three. Written by Samuel A. Peoples, this was picked from three potential story ideas submitted to NBC after the initial pilot episode, The Cage, starring Jeffrey Hunter as Captain Christopher Pike, was not deemed suitable. NBC, however, was still interested in the concept and gave the unprecedented go-ahead for a second pilot. When Hunter decided to bail out, Roddenberry started casting around for a new captain. Unlike other pilots that recast a key role, such as the A-Team or Cagney and Lacey, Roddenberry altered the name of the captain to James T. Kirk, a decision that would greatly benefit the show later on. Jack Lord and Lloyd Bridges were approached, but ultimately the role went to Canadian-born, classically trained stage actor William Shatner, and history was made. While tracking the signal of a lost vessel, the USS Valiant, the Enterprise approaches a galactic barrier that surrounds known space. The starship is almost crippled by the barrier and crewmen aboard the ship that have been registered with a higher than usual ESP rating suddenly start displaying great abilities like telekinesis and telepathy. One such crewman is Gary Mitchell, played by 2001's Gary Lockwood, Kirk's friend since the Academy. As Mitchell grows ever more powerful, Kirk must deal with the fact that this exact same thing happened to the crew of the Valiant, and Spock urges Kirk to kill his friend before it's too late. A long-time favourite where no man has gone before is a spectacular episode on every conceivable level. From a production standpoint, this episode is still remarkable, coming upon 50 years later. The special effects are extraordinary, and the matte paintings and sets are simply light years of anything else made for TV at that time. Story-wise, some of the elements don't hold up anymore. Dr. Dana, played by Mash's Sally Kellerman, mentions that ESP is a fact, which betrays science fiction's obsession with the idea in the late 1960s, and some of the technology speak is quite 50s rather than the more elegant and less dated terminology of the series. However, in every aspect that matters, story and character, this is an exemplary script, and one of the best pilot episodes of any television show. The characters, from regulars Kirk and Spock to guest stars Dana and Mitchell, are fully rounded three-dimensional people. Kirk's compassion, the very thing Mitchell berates him for, is ultimately his defining characteristic, and Shatner imbues Kirk with charm and personality, coming across as a far more appealing man than Pike, although, to give Pike his due, that was a very different kind of story. And if Nimoy is a little off-kilter as Spock, shouting and smiling a little more than is the norm, but he too manages to get Spock's essential characteristics across, and his urging to Kirk to kill Mitchell is genuinely chilling, whilst never making Spock unlikable. As with all good stories, the point of view of all characters is ably expressed, and the viewer is therefore as conflicted as Kirk. He even gets to deliver the first of his impassioned speeches, and as ever, is compelling when he talks about human frailty. Gary Lockwood plays Mitchell with charm initially, but gets slowly more calculating as the episode's theme, that absolute power corrupts absolutely, is explored to the hilt. There's even a decent twist hinted at earlier in an exceptional piece of foreshadowing that is still nevertheless intriguing when Dana also starts evolving, an effect effectively realised by the simple application of silver contact lenses. For me, the interesting thing about this pilot, though, with 50 years of added Trek law, is that this is clearly not Kirk's first mission as captain of the Enterprise, despite what the Okuda's timeline books may have you believe. 
Dr. Dana clearly states that Spock and Mitchell have worked together for years, the implication being that this is not Kirk's first year in command. This was a standard pilot trope of the time. Very few pilot episodes in this era began with a how-they-all-came-together story. Rather, it was just a standard episode, and the audience was brought up to speed as they went along. There's also no mention that Mitchell is first officer, something that has been referenced in novels and comics subsequently. Another oddity is Kirk's gravestone, as made by Mitchell, claims that Kirk's middle name begins with R rather than a T. I eagerly await a six-issue miniseries explaining this gaffe. Alexander Courage's score is as effective as his score was for The Cage, and, as with all good soundtracks, listenable divorced from the show. In fact, the episode's soundscape, the bridge's bleeps and the engines roaring are also excellent. It not only didn't look like anything on TV, it didn't sound like it either. A lot of pilots struggle or are simply a blueprint for the series to come. Star Trek hit the ground running. Runner-up in my top ten treks is Balance of Terror. When patrolling near the Romulan Federation neutral zone, the Enterprise comes upon a number of Starfleet colonies that have been attacked by the Romulans. Little is known of this strange alien race first encountered in the Earth-Romulan War of a hundred years ago. What is known is that they are a savage warlike race with zero compassion for their enemies. Kirk is placed in the haunt of a dilemma. If the Romulans, who have clearly broken the peace treaty by encroaching upon Federation space, return home with their knowledge, it could instigate a full-scale war. But if Kirk attacks, all aboard the Enterprise could be lost. Is interstellar peace worth 400 lives? Again, the synopsis above really doesn't do justice to Paul Scheider's script, which, in addition to touching upon another tried-and-true Trek theme of honour and the futility of war, while still acknowledging that there are times when to fight is necessary, also features the character-based subplot of Angela Martine and her marriage to Logan Five, and Lieutenant Stiles' bigotry towards Spock when the Romulan's true face is revealed. In addition, the Romulan commander, ably portrayed by the man who would be Sarek, Mark Leonard, is also fleshed out, once again proving Trek was one of the best shows around for guest actors. The cat-and-mouse antics between Kirk, once again portrayed admirably and with restraint by Shatner, and the Romulan carries this episode and the director manages to create a palpable sense of tension between the two foes, despite never actually meeting face-to-face, apart from a brief view-screen conference. Essentially, it's run silent, run deep in outer space. Character moments are once again wonderful. Kirk has another great scene with McCoy, lamenting his role and wondering what happens to the crew if he's wrong. And Nimoy's performance as Spock is one of his best. Styles' bigotry towards Spock is expertly handled, neither patronising nor obvious, and as with the best writing, understandable in the situation. Kirk's line, when told that Styles lost most of the male side of his family in the Earth-Romulan War, simply states, Their war, Mr. Styles, not yours. Spock saving Styles' life at the end shows us the folly of bigotry without long-winded diatribes. Likewise, the Romulan commander's palpable sense of grief when he loses his first officer, only to then jettison his body out the photon tube, is a very effective moment. Kirk also has a loss to deal with when Logan 5 is killed before he can be married to Angela. And if you're wondering why I call him Logan 5, check him out the next time you watch this episode. He bears a startling resemblance to Michael York. It's also a pleasure to see Uhuru at the navigation console, even if she doesn't actually do very much once there. There are issues 
Angela Martine, actress Barbara Baldovin, reprised her role in Shaw Leave, which heard back-to-back with this episode, which implied she got over the death of her fiancé rather quickly, a problem caused by the SFX in the show taking a long time to complete. And it's a little silly to imply a mistake from Spock will reverberate through the soundless vacuum of space. But in every other respect, this is an almost quintessential episode of Star Trek and, along with The Devil in the Dark, a pretty much textbook example of what the show is. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for. Coming in at number one, my all-time favourite episode of Star Trek, and the episode that would have been on my top ten favourite hours of TV had I included Trek. Granted, whilst this is an inordinately enjoyable episode, it's not one to show to new viewers an example of what Trek is, but if there's any single episode that I watch every single time it's on, it's this one. A Mock Time, written by Theodore Sturgeon, is the Vulcan episode and a treat from start to finish. When Spock starts behaving irrationally, McCoy gives him a full examination, only to learn that due to some bizarre chemical imbalance, Spock will die unless he's taken to Vulcan. Kirk confronts Spock only to learn it's all about the Vulcan birds and bees, in that every seven years the Vulcans undergo some kind of strange mating urge called the Ponfar, and they must drain their build-up else they go insane. Disobeying a direct Starfleet order, Kirk takes Spock to Vulcan, where we learn that Spock is betrothed to Vulcan hottie to Pring. Pring, however, is all about making it difficult, and challenges Spock to the Kunut Kalifi, marriage or challenge. Spock is stunned, elderly Vulcan dignitary to Pow even more so, but the worst is yet to come, when Tapring picks Kirk as her champion. And this is a fight to the death. This second season opener, albeit filmed fifth, is another example of everything working. The performances of the regulars, the guest cast, the sets, the story, everything is firing on all cylinders for this most excellent of Star Treks. Demonstrating the loyalty that Spock showed to Captain Pike, Kirk risks his career to take Spock to Vulcan and prevent whatever it is that is happening to him. And again, demonstrating the loyalty that Spock showed to Captain Pike, Kirk risks his career to take Spock to Vulcan and prevent whatever it is that's happening to him. And again, Nimoy and Shatner are excellent. It's also a highlight in the Kirk-Spock-McCoy triumvirate, with DeForest Kelly now added to the opening credits and being allowed genuine co-star status. Canonically, it's also the first appearance of Walter Koenig as Chekhov, and he gets a few nice scenes with Sulu. But this is Nimoy's episode, and he's excellent in it, running the gamut from normal logical Spock to angry Spock to a Spock who's burly keeping it all under control. It's a magnificently restrained performance. The guest cast are equally impressive. Celia Lofsky as T'Pau really sells her Vulcan heritage. The way she says humour, it's like it's an insult, and it's a very well-delivered line, and yet another example of the original Star Trek being the only series that cast Vulcans right. Also deserving of praise is Arlene Martell, exotic and sexy as Tipring, rocking one of costume designers William Wertis's less revealing gowns. It's also worth noting that none of the Vulcan women in this episode have the Spock Bob, something that all Vulcan women seem to adopt in subsequent series for some reason that I never quite understood. Tipring's role, however, isn't simply to be the episode's damsel. She's shown to be manipulative, intelligent, and a woman of her own mind. She has no desire to be the consort of a legendary figure like Spock, and instead chooses her lover, Stom. Her logic, no matter what Spock says, isn't flawless. 
A big deal is made out of the battle to the death, so how would she have lived happily ever after with Ston? Had Spot won, Ston would have been dead. Also, it's yet another time a regular is believed to be dead, but oh no, it's just a ruse. Thematically, this episode is all over the place. It's a study in loyalty and one of the first instances of portraying friends as extended family. There's a subtle indication that ego leads to nothing but trouble, as well as pointing out that arranged marriages may not necessarily be a good thing. There's also the implication that maybe sex is far too dominant in our biological makeup, but having too much to say isn't necessarily a bad thing, especially as none of this gets in the way of the excitement and drama. No discussion of a mock time is complete, however, without mentioning the excellent score again by Gerald Fry. The word iconic is oft overused nowadays, but if any of Trek's individual episodic scores deserve the label, it's this one. Spock's theme, and the Vulcan music, and of course, are all wonderfully evocative and memorable. I think it's the perfect hour of TV. For the first season episodes, I watch my DVDs, and from the second season onwards, I managed to catch the repeats on CBS Action, recording the episodes I wanted. These were the remastered versions, and they are gorgeous to look at. I think the reason there doesn't seem to have been an outcry over the remastered Star Trek are that they have been, by and large, very faithful to the originals, and in some cases, even managed to do things that were in the original scripts that the show couldn't afford back then. The opening of Charlie X, for example, was scripted to show the Anturas docking alongside the Enterprise, but the production crew couldn't afford to build the model. The remastered version adds this little detail along with others, such as a magnificent long shot of Vulcan when the crew beams down in a mock time, and the FX work on the Doomsday Machine is simply magnificent. None of this takes away from the glorious job the original FX guys did, and I urge you to check out Mark Cushman's books, These Are the Voyages, for a detailed examination of everything that went into the making of each show. I also urge you to check out the Star Trek Monthly Monday episode I did with Chris Honeywell, where we discussed a mock time in much more detail. As I said at the top of the show, I have no great insight into why Star Trek has endured. Certainly it's light years ahead of anything else on TV at the time, but that alone can't be the reason for its continued success. All I know is why I like it. It's the perfect marriage of slightly silly and deadly serious. It's proper science fiction through a populist lens. It's well performed. Even at his hammiest, Shatner was always watchable. And D. Kelly is just as capable of chewing the scenery with good stories, wit and intelligence. But above all, it's fun. Never underestimate fun. The more complex the mind, the more stressed out lives get, the busier we are on a daily basis, the greater the need for the simplicity fun. Thank you very much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, one of the things that struck me on re-watching all of these is, as I said at the top of the show, just how fast-paced they were. They didn't drag, which is remarkable when you consider how much television from only ten years ago now feels a little bit slow. And now on to the email section of the show. One of the advantages of this being infrequent is I can address the email in a much more timely fashion. The first email came from Chris Franklin, entitled Sif You Asked, which I quite like. That's quite clever, that. Hi, Andy. You made some very convincing points about Revenge of the Sith, but you didn't have to go too far to convince me, since I've always enjoyed the film. As you say, it's not perfect, but it's definitely the best of the 
prequels. Not being a huge Star Wars fan, I'm able to enjoy every film on its own merits, even though Phantom Menace is hard to slog through at points. I think Sith's biggest flaw can be laid at the feet of Lucas as director. He's well known for not being an actor's director, and it shows here. Natalie Portman's dialogue and delivery is a prime example of this. Portman is a fine actress and holds her own in similar genre, similar genre roles like Thor. I do suspect that both Jake Lloyd and Hayden Christensen were somewhat miscast as Anakin in the prequels, although again, with better direction from Lucas, they wouldn't have seemed quite so cloyingly sweet and whiny, respectively. An edgier child actor, like, say, Eddie Furlong in T2, would have made a much more convincing Anakin than Lloyd. When Anakin is in his darkest places, I think Christensen sells it, but I don't really buy why Padme and Obi-Wan love him. He has problems with the much more subtle light side. I think, again, this may be Lucas's fault. The cut subplots and scenes you mentioned would have greatly helped us relate to Anakin, Padme and Obi-Wan. Anakin's sudden move to the dark side in the film points more to an inherent evil within him, seen in the slaughter of the Tusken Raiders in clones, than it does to any actual desire to save his wife or manipulation by Palpatine. I do think killing the younglings was a bit much, although we know Vader goes along with the destruction of a whole planet, obviously full of children, in the first film, so we shouldn't be too surprised. This act did make it hard to swallow Anakin as the hero of the subsequent Clone Wars animated series, movies, toys, pyjamas, etc. It seems odd to encourage kids to root for the guy who would do such a thing. Padme's death of a broken heart is hard to digest as well, and I agree it would have been great to see her survive into the original trilogy, or at least know she died when Leia was a little older. Her rather weak-willed death undermines the strong character moments from the previous films, and is a stark contrast to her daughter's take-charge role in the original trilogy. Having said all that, I felt the film delivered. The final battle between Anakin and Obi-Wan was the epic we were promised, and Anakin's dismemberment and immolation was both tragic and somewhat satisfying. The success of the film for me largely sits on the shoulders of Ewan McGregor, who truly held this series of films together. His Obi-Wan rose above the mediocrity of the script and other actor portrayals. Great episode. I look forward to hearing more. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Not really much in the way of running commentary, though. I I didn't really disagree with anything you said. It, it, It kind of reinforces my opinion that the only thing really wrong with the prequels was getting a good writer to do a dialogue polish. You know, it's the, the prequels really do sell me on this idea that Lucas didn't have it all planned out from the beginning. Because there's just so many little things that it seems like he's, he's dancing around to make fit. Whereas, and it doesn't make any sense as well, to interrupt my own train of thought, that he knew going into this he was doing three prequel films. Why did he not lay all three of them out at the start of the process and essentially have all three scripts written before doing episodes one, two and three. That always struck me as being the most logical way of doing it and surely he could have saved some money by filming little bits here and there. Maybe we could have had Qui-Gon show up at the end of Revenge of the Sith if Lucas had had it all scripted from the beginning and known about it and had Liam Neeson film his episode three bits whilst he was there for episode one and he wouldn't have had the the awkward obstacle of having to bring him back for a day shooting. There's also certain elements of the prequels that would have worked much better if he'd done that. I mean, I've said before, structurally, Phantom Menace should have been like Superman. The first 45 to 50 minutes should have been Anakin as Jay Lloyd. And then the death of Darth Maul cuts to ten years later, and Anakin's now Hayden Christensen. And that should have been 
Attack of the Clones, essentially, the last bit seed in the Clone Wars. And episode two should have been the Clone Wars on film. I always feel a little bit cheated that we got the Clone Wars as a, a supplementary television show. And one that I've never really been able to get into. I've tried watching Clone Wars a number of times. Just this week, I sat down to watch the season five opener. And in all cases, I'm I'm like, it's all right, it's okay, but I never, it never grabs me enough to drag me into watching more of them or binge watch it. I mean, it was nice seeing Darth Maul back as a half android, and he's now got a brother with a yellow skin tattoo thing instead of a red one and James Arnold Taylor was great in it as Obi-Wan but that was that was pretty much my opinion of it, it was it was alright it's not made me want to watch more and I do think one of the biggest missteps of the prequel trilogy is not seeing the Clone Wars on film but then as you say we wouldn't have got an Anakin on pyjamas and five years worth of Clone Wars television series so I, I honestly think all oh, that was calculated to let's not do the Clone Wars movie because I can melt this for five seasons worth of television. So, you know, whatever. Whatever George wants to do, he's the boss, after all. Tom Panarese has emailed with uh, the, the subtext heading is just Palace of Glittering Delights Band in Britain. Andy, I wanted to write in and say how much I've been enjoying the Palace of Glittering Delights. While you bring a different perspective to popular culture than I do, for obvious reasons of geography and age, you do so in a way that has me feeling I can relate to what you're talking about. It's all right up there with Michael Bailey's views from the long box, which is quite possibly the highest compliment you could pay, Mr. Panaris, because... Uh, I think Views from the Long Box is top-notch. I think it's it's certainly one of the best, if not the best, comic book, purely comic book-related show out there. I mean, even when Mike goes off on his tangents, it's always purely comic book-related. It's one of my favourite shows, So, and Mike's one of my favourite broadcasters, if we can uh, apply such a lofty term to those of us that do internet broadcasts. So thank you very much for that. I, I, will, I will wear that as a, with honour. Your Banned in Britain episode was particularly great, and I found the details of why certain shows were banned or edited, edited, edited fascinating. I'm sure this has happened a number of times here in the States, although I think the American censors tend to be more subtle, or at least network standards and practices tend to do more due diligence about controversial content before it goes to war. And historically, they have tended to wear more racy content later at night, hence NYPD Blue which was known for its nudity and cursing, getting a 10pm time slot. Still, with cable television rerunning bad reality programming with all of its sex, cursing and violence at all times of day, I'm not sure it's even a big deal anymore. No, we still have the watershed, but like I say, there are certain shows that try and push the boundaries of that watershed. Hollyoaks has tried to do it, and EastEnders does it all the time, and even Coronation Street has had an episode or two pushed back to after 9 o'clock when they're dealing with the heavier themes. I think the watershed's a good thing. I don't really, much as I loved Spartacus, um, and I may do a show about Spartacus, much as I enjoyed Spartacus, I wouldn't want that airing at 8 o'clock at night. I think that is very definitely an, an adult show, and children shouldn't come across it. But, again, as I said, in, in Band in Britain, you, you, there is only so much control you have over what your children are exposed to. Once they're out there, playing with the friends and, and what have you, you have no control over it anymore. And a lot of times it's big brothers. It's big brothers who spoil 
or introduce the little brothers and sisters to stuff you don't want them to see. I certainly know it's the case in our house, but um, when you're not around, because they get home from school at 3.30, you're still at work for another hour. So they're on their own there, and you've just got to, by large, trust them. And sometimes they're not really deserving of it. They may think they're adult, but they're not, and they'll expose them. They'll expose their younger sister to stuff like Grand Theft Auto, which I, I was not best pleased about. Anyway, I am sure, continues Tom, by the way, there have been plenty of times where a show has been cut for content, or a rerun of a show has been cut for content. As I mentioned last time, Starlog, I think it was issue 6, had an article about Star Trek Band in Texas. I did go and look it up after I um, I, I did that episode, so if you check archive.org and download those early episode, uh, issues of Starlog... There is an article on episodes of Star Trek that were banned in Texas. Tom continues, I know that both versions of the Canadian television Degrassi series from the 80s and 2000s had issues about abortion either edited or cut entirely from their American broadcasts. Funnily enough, the 2003 episode of Degrassi The Next Generation that aired on cable was cut, and the 1980s episode of Degrassi High that aired on PBS had a minor edit. But if you want to talk censorship and banning to my generation, then the show many of us will point to is Married with Children. Back in 1989, the sitcom became national news when a Michigan housewife watched an episode about Al and Steve going to an adult store in order to buy lingerie. It was definitely an episode that pushed the envelope, and she began a letter-writing campaign that led to advertising pulling some of their ads. Fox then got gun-shy and pulled the episode, I'll See You in Court, where the Bundys are videotaped having sex in public and sue for violation of privacy. The episode would air internationally, but not in the States, until the FX network re-ran it in 2002. I used to watch Married with Children all the time, and I thought it was actually very, very funny. Because on the one hand, yes, it was about this low-rev family, but on the other, there was some very subtle, subtle jibes in that show that I think it doesn't often get the credit for. I vaguely recall both of them. Um, also, as a point to that, see, sex is something we don't really have a problem with over here. It's violence we tend to be more prudish about. Sex, you know, when I was growing up, Minder would her at 8, 8.30, 9 o'clock in the evening and they would go to strip joints in that show and, you know, nobody ever seemed to really bat an eyelid. I mean, I know it was the 70s, but... So sex and nudity is not something I think we really have that much of a problem with. It's 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 more violence. On that, I believe there was an episode of The Simpsons called The Cartridge Family that I think Fox would only show Fox Sky. It's owned by Fox. It's the same thing essentially. Would only show after a, a certain time at night. I don't and I don't think Channel Four showed it, and they showed The, the Simpsons. Tom continues, whilst the boycott did lead to Fox immediately reducing the amount of raunchy content in the show, in the long term it had the opposite effect, making the show even more popular. Married with children in its entire run can be hit or miss, but there are some absolutely genius episodes in its 11 seasons. I smell a podcast episode. Well, Tom, if you were to do that as part of Pop Culture Affidavit... I would love to listen to it, because I really did like Married with Children, and I'm pretty 90% sure... Still a little bit uh, that I'm not sure about, but I'm 90% sure we didn't get all 11 seasons. I know we got as far as Ted McGinley showing up, but I know when we were in holiday in Florida a couple of years ago, it was on at 6 in the morning. So, of course, you're up getting ready to go to the theme parks, and I'd I'd catch a couple of episodes, and I'm sure there was a couple there I didn't remember from when uh, Kelly and and, uh, the other boy, I forget his name, Bud, wasn't it? Bud Bundy, were a bit older. 
Since 1989, Tom continues, there has definitely been other controversies, usually along the lines of certain network affiliates refusing to run a show because viewers have called in regarding questionable content. Roseanne's lesbian kiss and the coming out episode of Ellen come to mind, but the ones that really seem to make news are people freaking out after something has heard, such as the infamous 2004 Super Bowl halftime show. Wardrobe malfunction, anyway. So anyway, I've rambled on long enough. A great show, and I'm glad you seem to have fun doing it. Can't wait for the next one. All the best, Tom. Well, we'll try not to keep you waiting too long. I do have fun doing this, because there's no there's no set pattern to it. There's no set release date. You can take as long as you want with it. It's, it's much more relaxing, I think, <laughs> to be honest. Doing a podcast can sometimes feel like a second job. So this doesn't feel like that. It's just when and if and when. Luke Giaconetti's emailed in also about Sith, called Live Sith Binge and Purge. Darth Leyland. Ah, the Star Wars prequels. What a minefield to walk into, especially on the internet. I like all three of them, honestly. They're not perfect by any stretch, but neither are the original trilogy. We just gloss over the flaws a bit more. But all six films are great space opera fun for me, so the vitriolic and hyperventilating nerd rage from the supposed fans of the series have toward them really just confuses and saddens me more than anything. I suppose any series which has this much staying power eventually becomes so much could to be chewed up by the fanboys and fangirls until all that remains is the negativity which sadly defines many such fandoms. I enjoyed Revenge of the Sith when I saw it in the theatre, but to this day it remains the only time I've watched it. The DVD still sits sealed with the other five Star Wars films on the shelf. It's just such a downbeat and distressing movie that neither I nor the wife ever choose to watch it, and we've not had a chance to sit down and watch the whole series marathon. Having kids will do that to you. Oh, surely having kids is an excellent excuse to sit down and watch all the Star Wars films, Luke. It's a good movie and a good Star Wars movie, continues Luke, but by necessity of the overall storyline, it has to be the dark chapter, and that makes it a bit of an odd man out in the series. I appreciated your discussion about the points where the novel expanded upon or improved the film. I tend to like novelizations of movies I like as the good ones add to the story, and even the merely average one take a story I like and make a book out of it. I will have to pick up this novelization. By the way, I love the crazy Calliope carnival intro. It's almost a good fit for the title as the Chinese restaurant idea. If this podcasting thing doesn't work out, you could always find work as a carnival barker. <laughs> Actually, I, I, I would probably enjoy that career change. Thanks again for the great show. Look forward to Top 10 Trek. Luke, well, you listened to that one, Luke. You've just finished. I hope you enjoyed it. P.S. You recommended Life on Mars to Tim Elliott. I have heard very good things about Life on Mars, but I have to say, oh, my God, the American version of that show was pure, unadulterated garbage with one of the absolute worst endings ever in television history. Yeah, the American one's trash. Sorry, but it is. The British one's really good, and so is the sequel Ashes to Ashes, which I'm currently watching on demand on Midway Through Series 2. For some reason, I didn't really catch Ashes to Ashes in first run. I think I just thought they were stretching the idea out too much, but just watching it on its own, I started watching Ashes to Ashes and didn't watch, didn't rewatch Life on Mars, and it's, I'm really quite enjoying it. So yeah, highly, heartily recommend it. But avoid the American one. It's dreadful. Timothy Elliott, speaking of... It's like we plan this stuff, isn't it? Has also emailed in. George, he's not such a bad guy. Greetings, Andrew. Greetings, Tim. I am responding to your Defence of the Sith podcast, and it's refreshing to hear a conversation about George Lucas that is not full of hate and negativity. Thank you for being a fan with an open mind and realise that Mr Lucas does not wake up in the morning with the sole purpose to piss all over your childhood. Well, thank you, Tim. I, I, I think I have a moderately open mind. I was even willing to watch Star Trek Into Darkness. I didn't think much of it, but I watched it. Oh, that's not actually fair. I didn't mind the first half. 
I just thought the second half was a bit poop. As a fan, continues Tim, I acknowledge that with all things there is good and bad. My love of the franchise blossomed in the summer of 77 when I saw Star Wars. It will always be Star Wars to me, not episode 4. Preach it, brother. In its original theatrical run, like so many others, I was dazzled, mesmerised and hopelessly hooked on this strange new universe unfolding before me. So when the prequels were announced, I was excited to revisit this universe for three more films. Are the prequels great? I will be honest and say no. Did I enjoy them with the eyes of a 12-year-old? Yes, I did. I'm not a prequel basher. I see the films for what they are, and I understand that Lucas told the story he wanted to tell. I don't think fans realise that people change over time. Lucas was no longer a hungry young filmmaker, but an ageing professional, who between Jedi and Phantom grew his business, raised a family, began an empire, the way he viewed the world had to change. I'm sure as a more mature adult he felt Han would not gun down Greedo in cold blood. Do I think the change was a good idea? Absolutely not, but I'm not ready to stomp my feet and throw a fit over it. Do I agree or even understand the decisions he made in the prequels? Not really, but I respect that they're his decisions. Lucas doesn't owe me or any fan anything. Like all good things I hold dear to my heart, I can find both the good and the bad. The prequels are flawed, but they have some fantastic visuals and wonderful character moments. Yeah, I pretty much agree with that. I don't think any artistic person owes us anything. And I do hear some some people in fandom say stuff like that. And it bugs me. They don't owe you anything except the best work. That's all they owe you. Um, There are certain times when I think they take us for granted. Certainly the lateness of some artists with with nary a a sorry pisses me off. I honestly think, just pulling an example out of my hat, if Superman Unlimited was solicited and then ran late, that comic should be free to us. It's as simple as that. But... At the same time, I don't feel that a creator owes me anything. Peter David was one of my favourite writers, and he still is, but I've not read a lot of his stuff recently, because he's chosen to go down areas I'm not that interested in. But I'm not begrudging of him as a creator for wanting to go down that, that route. It's just more a case of, well, this isn't for me anymore. C'est la vie. You know. Vive la différence. Tim concludes with, I will get off my soapbox now and return to your regular scheduled programme. There seems to be a trend of late that you can't be cool or hip if you like the prequels and don't bash Lucas. I get a little bit tired of it. It seems that some Star Wars fans have a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately attitude. Keep the show coming, Andy. Can't wait for top ten treks. Cheers, Tim Elliott. Well, like Luke, Tim, you have also just heard top ten treks, so I hope that you enjoyed it. The reaction to episode seven... I think is going to be quite interesting because essentially it's the Star Wars vocal minority being given what they want a Star Wars film that George Lucas has got very little input into so it'll be interesting to see if they like this one or not If you have any comments, disagreements, brickbats, whatever, feel free to email heykidscomics at virginmedia.com, which is currently my email address. And if you've stumbled upon this episode from somewhere else, I can be friended on Facebook with heykids as the first name and comics as the surname. I'll be back at some point in the future with another one. I have no idea what it'll be about, because that's the fun of the show. Goodbye. (laughs) 